All right, Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're going to be at this morning. And as you guys make your way to the first chapter of Hebrews, uh, let me just remind you the theme of the book of Hebrews. Now for uh, those of you that were here last week, you don't look at the screen and cheat. The rest of you can look. Uh, The theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better, right? Jesus is better is a theme. So whenever you're out and about in the community and they ask you where you're going to church, and you tell them Woodlawn Chapel, they're like, hey, is that that weird little church that teaches through the Bible verse by verse, line upon line? You can say yes. And then when they ask you, what are you studying? Hebrews is the answer. Well, tell me, what is Hebrews all about? I bet you can't sum it up. Well, the reality is you can. In three little words, uh, Jesus is better. Better than what? Uh, Yes, better than anything you can come up with, better than anything you can propose, uh, he is better. That's the theme that we're going to carry throughout our study through the book of Hebrews. Now, the audience for the book of Hebrews was uh, one of a uh, Jewish sort. And for these group of Jews, they were actually struggling in the midst of persecution. And so for the writer, while we don't know exactly who the writer is, we did look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. God is the first name listed. So we've attributed the writing of this book to God himself. What we find is that he's writing to a group of people who are struggling in the middle of persecution. And as they're struggling and being persecuted in large part by their Jewish brethren, their question is, why not just make this easier on myself and go back to the old tradition? Why not just uh, quit uh, going hard after Jesus? And by the way, um, you're not the only one who's been there. (laughs) These Jews, even uh, Messianic Jews, even thousands of years ago felt just like that. Is it really worth pressing in that hard? Is it really worth continuing to pursue? Why not just go back to tradition and go back to hitting the easy button? And this was the temptation that they had, was to go back to the shackles of tradition. Now, what we read in chapter 1, verse 1, was that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all the things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we have here in these first three verses a declaration on who Jesus is. I would call these the the I am statements of Hebrews. Uh, Seven different statements where Jesus is stating who he is. And these are in stark contrast to the I will statements you'll see in Isaiah chapter 14 where Satan declares all the things he will do only to be struck down and sent uh, to hell for all of eternity. Here Jesus is making the I am statements in Hebrews chapter 1. And we see this him talking about declaring who he is, his very nature his character. He is the inheritor, the creator, the radiator, the representer, the sustainer, the purifier, the ruler of all things. Pretty bold statements, but all 100% true. He is the great I am. In Exodus, when Moses asked there at the burning bush, who do I go back and tell the people you are? He said, tell them I am sent you. Yahweh, Jehovah, YHVH is how it appears in the Hebrew Bible. So holy was the name of God, this covenant name, that they wouldn't even write the vows. That's why we're not sure if it's Yahweh or Jehovah, the great I am. And what he told them was go and tell them I am sent you because whatever you need, I am that, the great I am. And here we see Jesus, the egoimi in the Greek, the great I am being everything we need. 
in our time of need. Now he is in this day spoken to us. This is something I didn't point out last week, but I want to bring this up here in verse 2. In times past he's spoken through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us directly by his son. It is important to note that he has spoken to us individually in a personal relationship. That what uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says is the veil that once separated us has now been torn. We now have access. No longer do we need an intermediary. We don't need a prophet. We don't need a priest. We can go directly to Christ Jesus. When we get to chapter 4, he's going to tell us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We get to run up into our Father's lap and ask him for what we need. The veil has, that previously separated us Behind that veil was the place where the Holy of Holies existed. Where only one time a year the high priest could go and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. But now that veil is torn. Why? Because a better atonement has happened. And this is Christ Jesus. He is a better mediator. He is a better sacrifice. He is a better and more perfect atonement. You see, for the Jews, year after year, they would have to go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood on Yom Kippur. Year after year, year after year. Why? Because they continued to pile up sins that they couldn't atone for. And so the blood of sacrifice had to be poured out there to make atonement. And now here is Jesus, the perfect atonement. One time and for all. No longer do we have to go back year after year, time after time, because he has done it once and for all, for all of eternity. We have that kind of access now because of him. Now, this week... As we head on to chapter, on to verse 4, excuse me, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And so the theme that we look at throughout chapter 1 is going to be Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, why, you might ask, would we make such a big deal about the angelic? Well, the reason for the writer making such a big deal about the angels is if you go back to chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, verse 2, it reads, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. So from Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 2, what was taught in Jewish tradition is that Moses on Mount Sinai was delivered the law by the angels. That the angels actually brought the law to him for him to record it on Mount Sinai. They take that from this verse. Now some of you may scratch your head and go, I don't get that from this verse. And what I would tell you is, um, it doesn't really matter if you get that from this verse. Because their tradition taught it and they believed it. And so the point wasn't, did they explain the verse correctly? The point was, through their tradition, this is how they felt the law was delivered. This is what they believed. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate is, uh, Jesus is greater than the angels, therefore he is greater than the law. You see, they held the law to such high esteem that the belief was the messenger must also be held at high esteem. So if Jesus is greater than the messengers, he is then greater than the law itself. He did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. Every single jot and tittle of the law would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The perfect fulfillment of the law. Now, what Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2 in regards to the name of Jesus. He says there in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of 
those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That every knee will bow. Not might bow, not could bow, but that every knee will. The real question is, will we bow our knee willingly here and now? Or will we bow our knee uh, forcibly uh, for all of eternity? God has given us that choice. But what Philippians 2 makes very clear is that at the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, that every knee is going to bow. Now as we continue... As we continue through our study, the rest of this chapter, what we're going to see is with that statement being made that Jesus is better than the angels, the writer is now going to give text to back that assertion up. And so each of these examples is going to be why and how Jesus is better uh, than angels. In verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will... Uh, be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In verse 6, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And so in verses uh, 5, as he begins, he quotes out of Psalm 27. This uh, Psalm 2, excuse me. This is known as a messianic psalm. Messianic psalms prophesy of, speak of the coming Messiah. Psalm Two is one of those. And there in Psalm 2, he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. To which angel did God ever say that? And the answer is uh, none. That is reserved for the Messiah. The second reference at the end of verse 5 comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is in the middle of what's known as the Davidic covenant. So David is being given a promise by God that in his line, the Messiah is going to come. And so there in the middle of that, he prophesies about him being called a father and a son, this relationship that will exist between the Messiah and God the Father. Now, finally, in verse 6, we see this word coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 32 that says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, for some of you who are going to write these things down, you're going to go back into the text later and look at them because you are Bereans. You are intense about searching out the word of God. So, thankful for you, but here's the thing. When you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, uh, many of you will find in your Bible that those words actually aren't there. <laughs> and immediately you're going to scratch your head and wonder what's going on. Maybe the text is off. Uh, maybe I can't believe the Bible. Who knows what you might think in your head. But a brief explanation. In the margins of your Bible, you'll see these letters uh, LXX. That is the symbol for what is known as the Greek Septuagint. So about 300 years before the time of Christ, there was a desire by the leaders of the world to actually have the Hebrew Bible in a way that they could read it and also understand it. And so they took 70 uh, Jewish teachers who also spoke fluent Greek, hence the name Septuagint, 70 of them, and they locked them away in a room in Alexandria until they came up with a translation of the Hebrew Bible that they could all agree upon. Now, this became the popular translation of the day because the known world spoke Greek. So popular that actually, in fact, 
Um, 75% of your quotes from the New Testament of the Old Testament are actually out of the Greek Septuagint. But the thing is, it was not a literal uh, word-for-word translation. That's where we get the Masoretic text, which is actually in most of your Bibles, especially if you have a King James or a New King James. Now, the issue is, it's a little harder to read, harder to understand, especially for those that spoke fluent Greek of that day. Now, that being said, the translation, because it wasn't literal, it was more of a thought-based Uh, What is the writer trying to communicate translation, much like our NLT or the NIV that many of you read, it's easier to understand, but sometimes the language isn't exactly perfect for translation. So all that to say, when you see what these letters in your Bible, uh, now you'll know what those mean. The LXX or SEPT, that's for the Septuagint, the MT is for the Masoretic Text. Now, aren't you glad you came this morning? We got that out of the way. Here's what the text says. It says, let all the angels of God worship him. The text before this says, who is he ever referred to? Which angel has God ever referred to as a son? And the answer is, no angel has ever been referred to as a son. Because that designation was for one and one only. That being the Messiah, Jesus Christ the righteous. Of whom... He has become the firstborn into the world, is what verse 6 says. Now this will cause some people to spin out. How could Jesus be uh, the firstborn of the world? He obviously wasn't firstborn. And oh, by the way, I thought he was before all things. So how could he be uh, born? Now, important to know and understand is that this phrase, firstborn, denotes precedence or priority more than who was actually born first. For an example, I'd go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. And here in Jeremiah, he's pronouncing uh, a prophecy over the nation of Israel. But at the end of verse 9, he says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim my firstborn. Same phrase being used. But what many of you know, because you're Bible scholars, is that uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But Ephraim was the secondborn, not the firstborn. Why would the writer then say, this is for Ephraim, my firstborn? Well, because it has to do with priority or precedence, not birth order. If you go back to Genesis chapter 48, uh, Joseph, the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, these two sons that were born there in Egypt, he's bringing his two sons before his father, uh, Jacob. Jacob is now growing old in Egypt. His eyes are going dim. He doesn't see well. He doesn't feel well. He's about to pass off the scene. And so oftentimes in the Hebrew culture, they would bring the children in before the father and he would pronounce a blessing over the sons. And so for Joseph, he was actually given a double portion of the blessing. We'll get into that sometime later. But he brings both of his sons, Jacob's grandsons, before their grandfather so that they could each receive a blessing there in Egypt. And as he brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, before Jacob, his father, he lines Manasseh up to receive the right hand of Jacob and Ephraim to receive the left hand of Jacob. And he brings the boys forward uh, just in time for Jacob to do the old he's like a like a ninja he reverses his hands he crosses his hands and puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh I'll go to Genesis 48 so the way you guys know I'm not making this story up in Genesis 48 in verse 
18, And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. He goes to take his hand off of Ephraim's head and put it over on Manasseh. He says, Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. A little side note about Jacob. I think often when we read through the Old Testament or maybe through kids' Bible stories, we've gotten this idea that Jacob was soft, that he wasn't a very tough guy. He was kind of a mama's boy, that Esau was the rough and rugged guy, the hunter, the hairy man, that uh, Jacob was kind of a weenie. He was a mama's boy. He wasn't so tough. But the reality is um, Jacob was one tough motor scooter. You wouldn't have wanted to mess uh, with Jacob. This is a guy who wrestled with God all night until God blessed him. Even with the dislocated hip, he cried out, bless me, until the Lord actually blesses Jacob. So he was a tough dude. No doubt he shot Joseph uh, the old dad glance. Even in his old age, he's able to give him the look like, you better take your hands off my hands. And he says in verse 19, I know my son, I know. He shall become a people, but he shall be, and he shall also become great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. You see, jo- Jacob was prophesying the precedence that Ephraim would have over his younger brother. And so firstborn denotes a precedence and priority, not necessarily birth order. What we note here is that for the angels, what are mentioned in verse 6 is they uh, worship him. That the angels of God will worship the Messiah. And what you'll find throughout the text is that over and over again, angels will not, in fact, they will refuse to accept worship. They know precisely where worship should reside. And no angel will accept worship. That is for God and him alone. Now, as a little side note, I didn't put it up on the slides, but this is free for your viewing pleasure. I would challenge you this week to go through the Old Testament and the New and find all the places where angels are mentioned. In particular, one angel in the Old Testament, the capital A angel of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because what you'll find is he is the only angel that receives worship in the Old Testament. And the reason is because he is a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament appears in multiple locations as the angel of the Lord. I'll take you to one such location, just so you know, Judges chapter 13. In Judges chapter 13, this is the prophecy given for the birth of Samson. And as this prophecy comes to Manoah, Samson's father, they get a visitation from the angel of the Lord, that very angel I'm talking about. And he asks in verse 17 of Judges 13, what is your name that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah, in verse 19, he prepares a sacrifice and actually offers the sacrifice to this angel of the Lord. And in verse 21, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more, he and his wife, Manoah, knew that it was the angel of the Lord. And in verse 22, he says to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. You see, he realized he had actually seen God. This was that angel of the Lord who accepted the sacrifice and went up into the flames as the sacrifice was being offered. Now when we go to the New Testament and we see an appearance of an angel, 
I'll go to Revelation chapter 22, into the book, easy to find. And here John has been given this tremendous prophecy uh, throughout Revelation. And in verse 8, when now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed these things to me. And then he said to me, see that you do not do that. Stop that. Cut that out. For I am a fellow servant and your brethren, the pro- and your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. And here is highlighter worthy. Worship God. Worship God. That's where worship is actually due. And so back to Hebrews, the point of all this is that no angel would accept the worship that was due to God. That is for him and him alone. As we continue in verse 7, he said, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers like a flame of fire? I think it's important to note that as we talk about angels and Jesus being so much uh, better, this is a quote from Psalm 104, by the way, for you taking notes, uh, that they are still impressive creatures. That as people come into contact with angels, there's a reason they fall down in front of them and want to worship because they are awesome to behold. They're not, you know, second rate, a bunch of nose pickers. But the reality is they are awesome to look at. But they are not Jesus. Not even close. Verse 8, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Quotes now from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. What I love about this is here in Psalm 45, God actually refers to the Messiah as God. God himself is testifying to the Godship of uh, Jesus, the Messiah. And what he says here is, I'm going to give my throne over to my son and give him a scepter of righteousness and the scepter of his kingdom. So here's King Jesus receiving the scepter of righteousness. I think that's important to note because we often wonder, how will God judge? How will God judge? How will Jesus sitting on the throne judge? And the reality is he will judge in righteousness. He will judge nothing like what I would judge. I lots of times think I want to be the judge, but the truth is um, I'm coming from a compromised state. I'm coming from a sin nature. I can't make a great judgment call on things, but King Jesus can. He is coming from a state of perfection. And so when the question is asked, how will God judge the man who lived in the middle of Africa hundreds of years ago that never heard the gospel. And the answer I would give you is, I have no idea. (laughs) But I know that he is righteous. I know that his judgments are true. I know that he is righteous and perfect. And so when it comes to how will he judge those who couldn't make a decision for themselves, or in the middle of a tragedy, how will God judge? I don't know these things, but what I know is he is righteous. He will judge nothing like what I would judge. He will judge in perfection and in truth. And in fact, what John would hear from the heavenly scene in Revelation chapter 6, verse 7, he said, and I heard from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. He will be true and he will be righteous. Now, as we continued there in 
Verse 9, we read the seventh verse of Psalm 45. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He loves righteousness. He hates lawlessness. And the reality is because of these two things, he's been anointed with the oil of gladness. Gladness is what he has received because of his love of righteousness. There is a correlation, a direct tie between righteousness and gladness. That so often what happens is that we have this idea that if I accept Jesus and I go down this path of being a faithful Christian, then my life is going to become boring and drudgery. It's going to be all over for me. No more fun for me. I'm now a believer in Jesus. But nothing could be further from the truth. I would submit to you that Jesus, when he walked the earth, while he was a man of sorrows, he didn't walk around with his head hanging all the time, with tears just flowing down, that he was the most genuinely joyful person to ever set foot on the earth. Joy emanated from him. There was a reason he was so attractive to the crowds. It wasn't just because of the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000. It was because of the great joy that he possessed. He had a joy that emanated from his righteousness. He had an oil of gladness poured out over him. And what we know about sin is that it is always pleasurable, but for only a season. And it never, ever lasts. That's the truth about sin. Is that it has to be pleasurable for a season, or who in the world would do it? But it never lasts. There's nothing sustaining about it. In fact, what James would say in James chapter 1, verse 15, we studied this a few weeks ago through the book of James. He says, when uh, desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That the reality of compromising ourselves is that it will only bring forth death. It will only bring forth needing more and more, and there is no satisfaction in that. But for Christ Jesus, he is given the oil of gladness. Have you ever heard of anyone being too kind? Have you ever heard of anyone being too righteous or too prayerful? Do you think at at any point in time that a person laying on their deathbed will say, I wish I would have prayed less? I wish I would have treated people a little more poorly. it, It never happens because there is a link between righteousness and holiness, and uh, gladness, happiness. So much so that what Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, is that godliness with contentment is great gain. That if we want to have great gains, it's not the size of our savings account that will do it. It's godliness with contentment. It's being thankful for what the Lord has brought before us, knowing that His judgments are righteous and true. But wait a minute, but I've prayed about this thing. I've prayed about this and I've prayed about this and and yet it never seems to happen. Maybe he wants you to wait. Maybe he's waiting until you're content with the spot you're in before he takes you to the next spot. What Jesus would say in Matthew 6.33 is that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all the other things will be added. We spend so much time chasing all the other things, we totally neglect the righteousness and the kingdom of God. His promise is to take care of all those other things if we'll just seek him first. As we continue, in verse 10, And you, O Lord, 
in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be, and they, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. A quote from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. What we see here is that the Messiah, King Jesus, he preceded all of creation. That before creation ever took place, he was. What we read last week from John was in in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And nothing was made that was made except what was made through him. And so he was there in the very beginning. Hebrews 1.3 said that he is the sustainer of all things. What we read from Colossians 1.17 was that by Christ all things consist. All things are held together by Christ Jesus. And that without him it's all going to roll up like a scroll is what Isaiah 34 says. He's going to take everything we see and he's going to roll it up. So much so that 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 he says that in him all things will, without him excuse me, all things will dissolve. That when he lets go it's all going to just dissolve. And the only thing that will remain is Christ and whoever is in him. And so the reality is if Christ isn't at the center of it, it's all just going to go away. Whatever I'm unwilling to allow Christ to be the center of, to it be completely and totally focused on him, all those other things stand the chance of letting me down and eventually just being washed away. As we continue in verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Psalm 110 verse 1. Jesus is the only one positioned at the right hand of the Father. And what is promised to him there is his enemies will be his footstool. And so for the battles that persist in our life. His promise is to put all those things under his feet. He has the ultimate victory. It's in him. Verse 14. Are they not all, speaking of the angels again, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Here's the responsibility angels truly have. Because in this day and age, they've been glorified and glamorized to such a degree that we see angels uh, everywhere. We've got angels out on the baseball field in Los Angeles. We've got this lady touching, been touched by an angel. We've got angels being sung about by Jay Giles. He saw him in a magazine. We won't go there. Uh, we've got Greg Allman uh, proclaiming that he isn't an angel. Angels everywhere. But here's the reality for angels in our life. Uh, they've been set forth to minister to us. This is their position. They are ministering spirits for us. Psalm 91 verse 11 says that they are sent to protect us. Imagine that. These angelic creatures, creation, creation, creatures, whatever I'm trying to say, you get the point. They've been sent to actually stand in the gap for us. There's a whole scene happening that we can't 
and see with our human eyes is taking place in the background. Paul would say that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and authorities. We fight against these things, and these angelic beings are standing there in the fight on our behalf as darkness wants to try to overtake us. Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy, but they are there battling for us, sent to protect us. What Luke chapter 15 verse 10 says is that uh, when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven, they send out a chorus. I mean, it's a party up there. They are getting after it in heaven, throwing down a party when one sinner repents. Luke chapter 16 in the story of the rich man and Lazarus as Lazarus passes off the scene and he makes his way on into eternity. What verse 22 says is that angels actually carry him to his eternal state. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Sent to carry us into all of eternity. And from Acts chapter 5 and chapter 12 we see angels actually unlocking prison doors. They're releasing people from prison. All in order to minister to us. As we head down the home stretch, here's the other thing I noticed as I was studying this week. From 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, I'm going to go right to verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. That for the prophets that prophesied, they weren't prophesying necessarily for them for that day or even the people surrounding them, but they were writing down prophecies that spoke to us right now. This age of grace. And as this age of grace was being prophesied about, this salvation that was being offered up, the good news, the gospel message that would be preached, that the angels, they looked into this and they marveled. They were absolutely amazed by this thing called salvation. By the grace of Jesus, God's riches at Christ's expense. That they looked into this grace and they just scratched their heads. You see, because for them, they, they lack something that we possess, and it is called potential. They were given one opportunity, one chance. Go with Satan and his minions, or go with God. One third of which picked to go with Satan, two thirds of which stayed uh, right there with God, but no other opportunities were given. And yet they look into our lives, and they look into time And time and time again, we're given an opportunity to make a decision. The grace that seems to be unending, it seems to be absolutely ridiculous, the amount of grace that we're given. They look into people's lives like like mine. And they go, how could that guy, with all that he's done, everything he's thought of, the things that he has taken part in and yet... This guy is an heir of salvation. They're amazed. And by the way, I'm amazed too. I hope that you feel that same way when you look at the grace of God. When you look at us being called heirs 
of salvation. I hope it makes you shake your head. There's a reason why every time the lyrics to Amazing Grace are sung, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I, I tear up. Why? Because it's hard to believe. It's hard to imagine. Why would Jesus do this for me? Why would he give me this kind of grace? Only thing I can come up with is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that those who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the only reason. He so loves us that he wants to give us time and time again an opportunity to choose him. Now what that speaks to me is, why then am I so short to give grace to others? Why am I so quick to pull back grace? When he has poured it all out there for me, I'm challenged by that this week. I should be so much more willing to give grace, to give unmerited favor to people around me and in my life. I want to encourage you in that this week. Marvel at the grace that he's had upon you and be willing to allow that grace to be given to those around you. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are so much better than angels. <laughs> we praise you for being the one who was before all creation. And most of all, Lord, we thank you for amazing grace. We thank you that you have poured out your life on our behalf so that we could be called heirs of salvation. What an amazing promise. Thank you, Lord, for sending us angels to care for us and take care of us. I am sorry for all the things I put my angels through the last 43 years. So thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for not giving up on us, Lord, even when we wanted to give up. Father, I praise you. In Jesus' name.